Chapter 10 of The Moon Men by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Chapter 10 The Butcher. We went on then, father and I, filled with grief and bitterness and hatred even greater than we had known before. We marched toward the marketplace of our district, and on the way we stopped at Jim's and he joined us. Molly wept when she heard what had befallen Mother and Juana, but presently she controlled herself and urged us on, and Jim with us, though Jim needed no urging. She kissed him goodbye with tears and pride mingled in her eyes, and all he said was, Goodbye, girl. Keep your knife with you always. And so we rode away with Molly's May the saints be with you in our ears. Once again we stopped at our abandoned goat pens, and there we dug up the rifle, belt, and ammunition of the soldier father had slain years before. These we gave to Jim. Before we reached the marketplace, our force commenced to dwindle again. Most of them could not brave the terrors of the cash guard upon which they had been fed in whispered story and in actual experience since infancy. I do not say that these men were cowards. I do not believe that they were cowards. And yet they acted like cowards. It may be that a lifetime of training had taught them so thoroughly to flee the cash guard that now no amount of urging could make them face it. The terror had become instinctive, as is man's natural revulsion for snakes. They could not face the cash guard any more than some men can touch a rattler, even though it may be dead. It was market day, and the place was crowded. I had divided my force, so that we marched in from two directions and wide fronts, about five hundred men in each party, and surrounded the marketplace. As there were only a few men from our district among us, I had given orders that there was to be no killing other than that of cash guards, until we who knew the population could pick out the right men. When the nearest people first saw us, they did not know what to make of it. So complete was the surprise. Never in their lives had they seen men of their own class armed, and there were a hundred of us mounted. Across the plaza, a handful of cash guard were lolling in front of Hoffmeyer's office. They saw my party first, as the other was coming up from behind them, and they mounted and came toward us. At the same moment, I drew the flag from my breast and, waving it above my head, urged Red Lightning forward, shouting as I rose, Death to the cash guard! Death to the Calcars! And then, of a sudden, the cash guard seemed to realize that they were confronted by an actual force of armed men, and their true color became apparent, all yellow. They turned to flee, only to see another force behind them. The people had now caught the idea and the spirit of our purpose, and they flocked around us, shouting, screaming, laughing, crying, Death to the cash guard! Death to the Calcars! The flag! I heard more than once, and, Oh, glory! from some who, like myself, had not been permitted to forget. A dozen men rushed to my side, and grasping the streaming banner, pressed it to their lips, while tears coursed down their cheeks. The flag! The flag! they cried. The flag of our fathers! It was then, before a shot had been fired, that one of the cash guard rode toward me with a white cloth above his head. I recognized him immediately as the youth who had brought the cruel order to mother, and who had shown sorrow for the acts of his superiors. "'Do not kill us,' he said, "'and we will join with you. Many of the cash guard at the barracks will join too.' 
and so the dozen soldiers in the marketplace joined us. And a woman ran from her house, carrying the head of a man stuck upon a short pole, and she screamed forth her hatred against the Kalkars, the hatred that was the common bond between us all. As she came closer, I saw that it was Thav's woman, and the head upon the short pole was the head of Thav. That was the beginning. That was the little spark that was needed. Like maniacs, laughing horribly, the people charged the houses of the Kalkars and dragged them forth to death. Above the shrieking and the groans and the din could be heard shouts for the flag and the names of loved ones who were being avenged. More than once I heard the name of Samuels the Jew. Never was a man more thoroughly avenged than he that day. Dennis Corrigan was with us, freed from the mines, and Betty Worth, his woman, found him there, his arms red to the elbows with the blood of our oppressors. She had never thought to see him alive, and when she heard his story and of how they had escaped, she ran to me and nearly pulled me from Red Lightning's back, trying to hug and kiss me. It was she who started the people shouting for me until a mad, swirling mob of joy-crazed people surrounded me. I tried to quiet them, for I knew that this was no way in which to forward our cause, and finally I succeeded in winning a partial silence. And then I told them that this madness must cease, that we had not yet succeeded, that we had won only a single small district, and that we must go forward quietly and in accordance with a sensible plan if we were to be victorious. Remember, I admonished them, that there are still thousands of armed men in the city, and that we must overthrow them all. And then there are other thousands that the twenty-four will throw in upon us, for they will not surrender this territory until they are hopelessly defeated from here to Washington. And that will require months, and maybe years. They quieted down a little then, and we formed plans for marching immediately upon the barracks that we might take the cash guard by surprise. It was about this time that father found Sewer and killed him. I told you, said father, just before he ran a bayonet through the tax collector, that some day I would have my little joke, and this is the day. Then a man dragged Hoffmeyer from some hiding place, and the people literally tore him to pieces. And that started the pandemonium all over again. There were cries of, On to the barracks! And kill the cash guard! Followed by a concerted movement toward the lakefront. On the way, our numbers were increased by volunteers from every house, either fighting men and women from the houses of our class, or bloody heads from the houses of the Kalkars, for we carried them all with us, waving above us upon the ends of poles, and at the head of all, I rode with old glory, now waving from a tall staff. I tried to maintain some semblance of order, but it was impossible, and so we streamed along, screaming and killing, laughing and crying, each as the mood claimed him. The women seemed the maddest, possibly because they had suffered most, and Thav's woman led them. I saw others there with one hand, clutching a suckling baby to a bare breast, while the other held aloft the dripping head of a calcar, an informer or a spy. One could not blame them, who knew the lives of terror and hopelessness they had led, they and their mothers before them. We had just crossed the new bridge over the river into the heart of the great ruined city when the cash guard fell upon us from ambush with their full strength. They were poorly disciplined, but they were armed, while we were not disciplined at all nor scarcely armed. 
We were nothing but an angry mob into which they poured volley after volley at close range. Men, women, and babies went down, and many turned and fled. But there were others who rushed forward and grappled hand to hand with the cash guard, tearing their rifles from them. We who were mounted rode among them. I could not carry the flag and fight, so I took it from the staff and replaced it inside my shirt. And then I clubbed my rifle, and guiding red lightning with my knees, I drove into them. God of our fathers, but it was a pretty fight. If I had known that I was to die the next minute, I would have died gladly for the joy I had in those few minutes. Down they went before me, to the right and to the left, reeling from their saddles with crushed skulls and broken bodies, for wherever I hit them made no difference in the result. They died if they came within reach of my rifle, which was soon only a bent and twisted tube of bloody metal. And so I rose completely through them, with a handful of men behind me. We turned then to ride back over the crumbling ruins that were in this spot only mounds of debris. And from the elevation of one of these hillocks of the dead past, I saw the battle down by the river, and a great lump came into my throat. It was all over. All but the bloody massacre. My poor mob had turned at last to flee, they were jammed and stuck upon the narrow bridge, and the cash guard were firing volleys into that wedged mass of human flesh. Hundreds were leaping into the river only to be shot from the banks by the soldiers. Twenty-five mounted men surrounded me, all that was left of my fighting force. And at least two thousand cash guards lay between us and the river. Even could we have fought our way back, we could have done nothing to save the day, or our own people. We were doomed to die, but we decided to inflict more punishment before we died. I had in mind Juana in the clutches of Ortis. Not once had the frightful thought left my consciousness, and so I told them that I would ride to headquarters and search for her, and they said they would ride with me, and that we would slay whom we could before the soldiers returned. Our dream had vanished, our hopes were dead. In silence we rode through the streets toward the barracks. The cash guard had not come over to our side, as we had hoped. Possibly they would have come had we had some measure of success in the city. But there could be no success against armed troops for an undisciplined mob of men, women, and children. I realized too late that we had not planned sufficiently. Yet we might have won had not someone escaped and ridden ahead to notify the cash guard. Could we have taken them by surprise in the barracks, the outcome might have been what it had been in the marketplaces through which we had passed. I had realized our weakness, and the fact that if we took time to plan and arrange, some spy or informer would have divulged all to the authorities long before we could have put our plans into execution. Really, there had been no other way than to trust to a surprise attack and the impetuosity of our first blow. I looked about among my followers as we rode along. Jim was there, but not Father. I never saw him again. He probably fell in the battle at the new bridge. Warren Colby, the blacksmith and preacher, rode at my side covered with blood, his own and cash guard. Dennis Corrigan was there, too. We rode right into the barrack yard, for with their lack of discipline and military efficiency, they had sent their whole force against us, with the exception of a few men who remained to guard the prisoners in a handful at headquarters building. The latter we overcame with scarce a struggle, and from one whom I took prisoner I learned where the sleeping quarters of Ortis were located. Telling my men that our work was done, 
I ordered them to scatter and escape as best they might. But they said that they would remain with me. I told them that the business I was on was such that I must handle it alone, and I asked them to go and free the prisoners while I searched for Juana. They said that they would wait for me outside, and so we parted. Ortis's quarters were on the second floor of the building, in the east wing, and I had no difficulty in finding them. As I approached the door, I heard the sound of voices raised in anger within, and of rapid movement as though someone was running hither and thither across the floor. I recognized Ortis's voice. He was swearing foully, and then I heard a woman scream and I knew it was Juana. I tried the door and found it locked. It was a massive door, such as the ancients built in their great public buildings, such as this had originally been, and I doubted my ability to force it. I was mad with apprehension and lust for revenge, and if maniacs gain tenfold in strength when the madness is upon them, I must have been a maniac that moment, for when, after stepping back a few feet, I hurled myself against the door, the shot bolt tore through the splintering frame, and the barrier swung in upon its hinges with a loud bang. Before me in the center of the room stood Ortis with Juana in his clutches. He had her partially upon a table, and with one hairy hand he was choking her. He looked up at the noise of my sudden entry, and when he saw me he went white and dropped Juana, at the same time whipping a pistol from its holster at his side. Juana saw me too, and springing for his arm dragged it down as he pulled the trigger, so that the bullet went harmlessly into the floor. Before he could shake her off I was upon him, and had wrenched the weapon from his grasp. I held him in one hand as one might a little child. He was utterly helpless in my grip and I asked Juana if he had wronged her. Not yet, she said. He just came in after sending the cash guard away. Something has happened. There's going to be a battle. But he sneaked back to the safety of his quarters. And then she seemed to notice for the first time that I was covered with blood. There has been a battle, she cried, and you've been in it. I told her that I had, and that I would tell her about it after I had finished Ortis. He commenced to plead and then to whimper. He promised me freedom and immunity from punishment and persecution if I would let him live. He promised never to bother Juana again and to give us his protection and assistance. He would have promised me the sun and the moon and all the little stars had he thought I wished them. But I wished only one thing just then, and I told him so, to see him die. Had you wronged her, I said, you would have died a slow and terrible death. But I came in time to save her, and so you are saved that suffering. When he realized that nothing could save him, he began to weep, and his knees shook so that he could not stand, and I had to hold him from the floor with one hand, and with my other clenched, I dealt him a single terrific blow between the eyes, a blow that broke his neck and crushed his skull. Then I dropped him to the floor and took Juana in my arms. Quickly as we walked toward the entrance of the building, I told her of all that had transpired since we parted, and that now she would be left alone in the world for a while until I could join her. I told her where to go and await me in a forgotten spot I had discovered upon the banks of the old canal on my journey to the mines. She cried and clung to me, begging to remain with me, but I knew it could not be for already I could hear fighting in the yard below. We would be fortunate indeed if one of us escaped. At last she promised, on condition that I would join her immediately, 
which of course I had intended doing as soon as I had the chance. Red Lightning stood where I had left him, before the door. A company of cash guard, evidently returning from the battle, were engaged with my little band that was slowly falling back toward the headquarters building. There was no time to be lost if Juana was to escape. I lifted her to Red Lightning's back from where she stooped, and threw her dear arms about my neck, covering my lips with kisses. "'Come back to me soon,' she begged. "'I need you so, and it will not be long before there will be another to need you too.' I pressed her close to my breast. "'And if I do not come back,' I said, "'take this and give it to my son to guard as his father's before him have.' And I placed the flag in her hands." The bullets were singing around us, and I had made her go, watching her as the noble horse raced swiftly across the parade and disappeared among the ruins to the west. Then I turned to the fighting to find but ten men left to me. Orrin Colby was dead, and Dennis Corrigan. Jim was left, and nine others. We fought as best we could, but we were cornered now, for other guards were streaming onto the parade from other directions, and our ammunition was expended. They rushed us then, twenty to one, and though we did the best we could, they overwhelmed us. Lucky Jim was killed instantly, but I was only stunned by a blow upon the head. That night they tried me before a court-martial, and tortured me in an effort to make me divulge the names of my accomplices. But there were none left alive that I knew of, even had I wished to betray them. As it was, I just refused to speak. I never spoke again after bidding Juana goodbye, other than the few words of encouragement that passed between those of us who remained fighting to the last. Early the next morning, I was led forth to the butcher. I recall every detail up to the moment the knife touched my throat. There was a slight stinging sensation followed instantly by oblivion. It was broad daylight when he finished. So quickly had the night sped, and I could see by the light from the east window of the room where we sat that his face looked drawn and pinched, and that even then he was suffering the sorrows and disappointments of the bitter, hopeless life he had just described. I rose to retire. "'That is all?' I asked. "'Yes,' he replied. "'That is all of that incarnation.' "'But you recall another?' I insisted. He only smiled." as I was closing the door. End of chapter 10 End of The Moon Men by Edgar Rice Burroughs